Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, we're finding the secret song. Late last summer, between directing videos for Tyler, Texas, and I Remember Everything, director Ishmael Abdusalam sat me down and asked all about the making of my 10th studio album, Constellations. Ish cut a 22-minute documentary short called Finding the Secret Song from that interview, which we premiered for a live audience last week and which is available in its entirety on YouTube right now. What follows is a lightly edited audio version of that entire interview, one in which I go pretty deep on what was really happening in my life as I headed to Nashville, Memphis, and Muscle Shoals to record Constellations in the months after leaving my corporate day job and waking up to a stark post-pandemic reality. Finding the Secret Song It Ends Up is something of a bridge between my first film, Mr. Rogers and Me, and our second documentary in progress, Friends and Neighbors, in that it captures the moment in which my songs unconsciously and unwittingly lead me to the difficult realization that I have some major, major changes to make in my life. If you're at a crossroads yourself or struggling with new year, new you, you may find some solace here. If you're interested in the Muscle Shoal sound, Elvis's Graceland, or simply the stories behind the songs on Constellations, well, there's a lot here for you too. Either way, sit back, relax, and let's take a long road trip into the South, where, as William Faulkner once wrote, the past is never dead. It's not even past. For years, since my 20s, in these kind of what I can now see as pivotal moments, often between career changes or moments in my life, I've gone down to Memphis and Nashville, specifically to go to Graceland. And it's kind of a weird origin story. I drove cross country when I was a kid, like I was 19, just to see the country. And on my way back, I was like, well, you got to stop at Graceland. It was like, I went to the world's largest ball of twine. And, you know, Elvis's house is like this kind of crazy piece of Americana. And Elvis to me is like this cultural figure, this icon in pop music, but also like a tragic hero, you know, like he lost his twin brother at childbirth. He had all this pressure from his parents to carry both of their sort of potential into the world. And, and here he was the like, most epically successful sort of American pop icon. But we, you know, he died drug-addled, depressed and isolated on the toilet. So they're just amazing, like, set of dichotomies that have a real resonance for me and have always been interesting. So I've gone down there, I think, four or five times. And I've always wanted to make a record there. And I think it connects in a way to this idea of grace, which I only have kind of really considered and figured in the last couple of years, this idea that like you're seeking this sort of divine intervention, this favor or salvation, you know, and it's somehow connected to where I am in the arc of my journey. And so my family, my wife and I, and the girls had just relocated to Wilmington, Delaware from 25 years 
for me, 25 years in New York City, to change the change the pace of things, to be more present in our own lives. And I had just left uh, seven years at a big social media company, and I I needed to do something. I needed an adventure. I had to build the time into a busy life to to seek this light, this insight. And as it ends up, grace is like salvation. You know, it's this thing afforded by God to like sinners, you know, so I'm not saying I'm a sinner, but just this idea of like, how can we find that space for ourselves? So I put together like a little bit of a journey, kind of an itinerary, like a, I don't know, a hero's quest or something. It was like week where I got tickets to a Garth Brooks concert. And I'm not even really a Garth Brooks fan. I, I went to the, you know, I was going to go to the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Ryman Auditorium where the Grand Ole Opry taped for years and years. I got my VIP passes to Graceland and then booked three days at, at Fame Studios because, you know, like huge fan of Jason Isbell, who was a songwriter there and recorded there. Paul Simon recorded there, the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding. I mean, it's an iconic room. And then I asked a buddy of mine who ends up being like a photographer to, to the stars. He shot the Video Music Awards when I was back at MTV. Shoots the Grammys and all these really epic events. My buddy, John Shearer, and asked him if he would take some photos. So I just had this kind of epic journey laid out in front of me. And, um, and right as Delta was rolling through in the summer of 2021, got on a plane and flew to Nashville. The truth is, man, it was, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I'd left a place where I'd built an identity as a musician and as an executive. And here I was in a new town where I didn't know anybody. And I was hanging a shingle to do my own thing where I wanted to marry that creativity with that sort of executiveness, the leadership stuff, the corporate stuff. Two months later, I was in Nashville by myself, strumming a guitar in a, you know, in a rented apartment. So the truth is, it was just a moment where I, I was seeking answers. I was trying to figure out what I was doing. If I pay attention, music always gave me signposts, gave me some sense of where I was headed and not in real time. Like you don't get it the moment, oh, I wrote the song and you, it's not in real time. You, you do the thing and then through the process, you get some sense of, oh, that's what was going on. So it was really kind of this blind faith leap into an experience because I knew it was time to go into that mode so that I could come out. I went down there with a bunch of songs in my pocket, right? Or, in my notebook, as it were. And I think I had chosen, I don't know, five that I was going to record. But, you know, when I was down there and I only had, I was only there for seven days total um, in Nashville and Memphis and Muscle Shoals, but I was open. So that very first night I landed, I went to Studio A, which is like home of like some iconic recordings, like Elvis's recordings. And you can feel it in the room. And I got to be in the room alone for a minute. You know, the tour guide was like, all right, sir, we're done. Uh, I went to the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I'm not, I'm not a huge country fan. I just, I was raised with Willie Nelson and James Taylor. I was raised with Jim Croce and Carol King. I loved R.E.M. who are from the South. And like I say, more recently, you know, like Jason Isbell or Rustin Kelly or, or Casey Musgrave. So like there's a little, there's enough twang in what I like to hear and what I like to write and what I like to sing. But I don't know that it's country. And what Muscle Shoals does so effectively is brings a little bit of rhythm and blues in with this 
gritty, dirty rock and roll and a little bit of country and soul and it and 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 an imperative to have like a really solid pocket, to be really in the pocket, to have a really good groove. So I just I just went down there kind of unknowing. I landed, I went to Studio A. I walked around the Country Music Hall of Fame, you know, gold records, and uh, there's Johnny Cash's black jacket and stuff. There's Taylor Swift's Grammy dress, that kind of thing. And uh, that night I was supposed to go to a Garth Brooks show. And again, I don't really, I, I, name one, I know one Garth Brooks song, but it got rained out. I mean, this, this, this like biblical storm blows through. And I'm, I'm in Sobro in, in South Nashville, right below this huge radio tower. I'm watching lightning, you know, it's, it's truly epic. And I'm eating street tacos and drinking beer and just pacing around. And, you know, it's, I, I think I'm going to walk to this show, but no, it gets rained out. I mean, they cancel the show. So I don't know. I strum my guitar. I go to sleep. And in the morning I walk to get coffee. And as I was walking back, I heard this refrain that ends up being the chorus of the song. And I got home and I just started strumming. And I got that first line um, this morning when I woke up and finished last night's beer. I remember that we broke up and began to disappear. This morning when I woke up, finished last night's beer. I remembered that we broke up and I began to disappear. Like a ghost above the pavement, there was nothing in the mirror. I'm just haunting myself, wishing. was like, oh, you know, you, you learn after 25 years of songwriting to pay attention when something's happening. I don't know how I do it. You just know, right? You just know. And it kind of came out fully formed. It's very Nashville in its own way. You know, the last verse, which is completely based on watching that thunderstorm, uh, you know, because the, the Nashville skyline's darker when all the stars have gone to sleep. Because, you know, I was like going for walks at midnight and the lights on the city go out. And I was also thinking about like when all the, when all the celebrities leave downtown because they, nobody lives there, right? The only people visit there, like it's like Las, it's like Las Vegas, you know, it's a, it's a tourist spot. There are people riding their bikes, like those bachelorette bikes. And, you know, it's not a, yes, there's music there, but anyway, the national skyline's darker when all the stars have gone to sleep. And there's a hole above the building where heaven used to be. It just came in one fell swoop, and it it connected to the, the experience in the moment. Now the Nashville skyline's darker, and all the stars have gone to sleep. There's a hole above the buildings where heaven used to be. So close my eyes, you would be ever really Yes, there's nothing left for me. 
it also spoke to something that I was wrestling with, which is like, well, who are you now? Who are you if you're not that guy? I'm not the guy who wakes up and finishes last night's beer, but I was a guy who was drinking more than I wanted to. And I was a guy who knew he didn't want to live the second half of his life the same way he did his first. So the refrain, I'm so sorry for everything I couldn't be for you, is as much to myself as it is to my wife, as it is to anybody who had a set of expectations around who I am or who I should be. And it felt like a, well, I guess a blessing, like, like an intervention from some higher power to say, well, it's okay to become who you need to become now, you know? So the song wouldn't have happened if I, if that, if I hadn't gone to Nashville, right? So the, the second night, I had tickets to go see a band at the Ryman Auditorium, which is the Grand Ole Opry was taped there for years and years and years. But again, this is like, just as that Delta wave of COVID's coming in. So we have this initial euphoria of like, oh, it's COVID's over. It's, well, let's go summer like it's normal. It's before we had this sense that there would be wave after wave. So I'm in the Ryman and I'm the only person with a mask and I'm bugged out. I'm like, I am not getting sick before I go into the studio for this band. And it was squeezed. They were fine and I had great seats, but I didn't need to get sick to see squeezed. So I, I, I turned to my friend and I said, this is the halfway through the first song. I turned to my friend and I said, I think we got to split. I'd warned her. I was like, I don't know if I can do this, but, but before we split, I put my hands on the, you know, the Ryman Auditorium is, is a, they're church pews. The Ryman Auditorium was initially a place built by the town founders to welcome traveling preachers. And so it resembles a church. There's stained glass and uh, church pews. Before we left, before that first song ended, I just closed my eyes and put my hands on the back of that pew because I wanted to be sure I was present in the Ryman for just a second. You know, it really is a holy place. And I, I swear I understood in, a, in an instant what that place is about and why music means so much to, to me and to all who have passed through there and to all who have made that town what it is and, and, and to all who have been moved by and inspired by music through time and memoriam, which is it, is, it is salvation. It's all in the music, right? It is like, it is church. It is, it is divine intervention. Like it's goosebumps if you're paying attention. My buddy Annie and I walk out of this show. I say, is there a place we can get a drink outdoors? Cause I'm not sitting inside. And she takes me to this place called Pinewood Social. And we sit down at this back patio and no one's there. We order a drink from this nice young waitress and she comes back and I'm striking up a conversation with this waitress. And I said, what's your name? She says, my name's Tiffany. And I was like, oh, nice to meet you. I'm Benjamin Dezani. I said, so where are you from, Tiffany? And she said, I'm from Tyler, Texas. And I was like, wait a second, Tiffany from Tyler, Texas? That's like perfect alliteration. I was like, and my friend Annie goes up, he's gonna write a song about this. But then, then I, I just, again, I'm just making small talk. And, I, and I, I said, well, what brought you to Nashville? And her face changes. And she puts down her little order and clipboard. And she says, uh, well, I'm gay. And my parents just couldn't, they just couldn't accept that. And so I had to leave. I'm, it moves me to saying it now, you know? And um, sure enough, the next morning over coffee, I just started strumming this pattern and I thought, I thought I want to write a hymn. I want to write like a church song. I want to write like a 
you know, like, like a U2 hymn, like a Where the Streets Have No Name, like a Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, like a song that talks about just these fundamental experiences that we all share. You know, Tyler, Texas is, is, is the song. And, you know, you may grow tired, you might grow weak, you may get hungry and beg for relief. And this is where I knew it was a song, man, this line, the road to heaven is paved with a song. And this is right where you belong. This idea that like, she needed to be there now. And I needed to be there now. And we needed to meet just for that instant, you know? And again, I guess it really is grace. It's intervention. It's like something higher happening. Did a quick shotgun three hours south to Memphis. Did the tour of Graceland. And it's like my fourth time. I mean, I know my way around. <laughs> it really is something else if you've never been. It's like a um, museum to a single dude, right? I mean, it's got airplanes, motorcycles, cars, um, all the rooms of the house, which is a pretty modest house by today's standards, haven't changed since 1970, whatever. Another interesting part of the experience is the people that you're on the tour with, you know? It is all walks, all colors, all stripes, all kinds of reasons. And there's something about that pilgrimage that I love. And like I said, I got to hold this key, the key chain to his pink Cadillac, which is really funny with the key. But what I wanted is his sunglasses. I saw they had them in this little vault thing. And I was like, can I try those on? And she's like, no. And then I went and met my buddy, Jason. And I you know, walked into fame. And it is once upon a time, when Rick Hall founded the studio, legend goes, it, the cotton fields were right across the street. In 2022, uh, there's a Walgreens on one side and like a, a CVS on the other. I mean, it's a mall, you know, but fame hasn't changed in, I don't know, 40, 50 years. It's a big, weird brown building with big yellow letters to say fame. And it really is, it's a place out of time. The hard part was what was going on inside because it wasn't like a tourist trip, exactly. You know, it wasn't like a pleasure trip, exactly. Like I was doing work. That was approaching like a milestone birthday, you know, like a big round number. And between, you know, some unresolved shit from my childhood that has come up over and over on my records and stepping off of a life that felt like a freight train that just kept moving faster and faster and faster. I wasn't home with myself. I felt like I'd spent so many years trying to achieve by some metric that was not really important to me, but I needed to do. I had to succeed by some business metrics. I had to make rent. I had to keep getting promotions and better and bigger and cooler jobs and whatever. And I drove that. Nobody put me up to that, but I didn't like the trajectory anymore. Uh, and that's why we left New York. That's why I left New York. And I was wrestling with, well, then what? Like what, what? I didn't know. It was, I mean, it was August. I left 
my day job in May, you know, it was like super fresh. And I just knew there was work to do. I knew I had to do some deep work around healing, trauma and pain and heartbreak and anxiety and depression. I knew I had to get straight with a body that was racked with chronic pain. And I don't know, was it chronic pain because I ran 20 miles every weekend? Or was it chronic pain because I put all kinds of shit in my body to cope? Was it chronic pain because I was so anxious that my muscles were gripped all the time? I don't know. I just hurt and I hurt everywhere. And I knew that that had to, that had to stop, um, which is, you know, kind of what I'm so sorry. That's kind of what we're talking about there, right? Um, the road to heaven is paved with a song, you know? What I was wrestling with was invisible to everybody else, but it's written all over the record. A quick interruption to ask for your help. We're at 21% of our friends and neighbors fundraising goal with just 12 days to go. So if you haven't, please visit fndoc.com right now to help us finish this vital, timely documentary about how trauma and chronic stress impacts us, each other, and our civic fabric. Your donation will help us fund final shoots, license footage, and produce graphics and animation, and enable us to deliver a rough cut to film festivals this spring. So please donate to fndndoc.com right now. Thanks, and back to our program. This guy, Rick Hall, he was a huge music fan, and, he, and, he, and especially this intersection, this kind of gumbo of... of rhythm and blues and country music and what was beginning to be rock and roll and, you know, built this amazing studio with these great rooms, you know, with great sight lines, which is a real thing uh, in Nashville and Muscle Shoals, this idea that you're recording the whole band at the same time, which is completely different from how music's made today with like Pro Tools and one person doing everything by themselves and everybody's super isolated. And you can feel that. And you know, you know, you read enough Rolling Stone as a kid, you know, you listen to enough artists talk, you, you, and you feel it in the room when you're playing with musicians versus doing it alone. And I had never really done that in this way. And fame is, is engineered in that way. And it's got these great reverb plates and these sounds that you can only get there and these instruments that you can only play there, like um, truly the very Wurlitzer that Aretha, you know, played, uh, the Rhodes piano on those early Aretha records, those early Otis records, they're still there, you know? Um, so it's a place that like brings together this, this gumbo, this country honk, you know, kind of thing that has a deep reverence for the groove and has a process that's super unique. You basically get in there and bang out a bunch of songs in rapid succession. So, you know, I'd bring a demo. In my case, it's like iPhone recordings you know, iPhone recording that I'd done the morning before at the hotel and everybody gathers around and they take quick notation. And there's a standard notation that they use Nashville notation. It's numbers. It tells you the key and the progression and they learn it really quick. And then boom, you're recording. So you might get a usable take on the third pass. You know, the guys will be like, did you get it? Did you get it? And these guys, they play together all the time. They're called the swampers, you know, cause it's, it's muscle shoals, right? So it's a big, big, beautiful, river valley and uh real lush it's where the tennessee uh, valley authorities there you know electrification post-depression and uh the swampers uh this is what they do 
they play this music and they play it all the time and they play it by feel and they trust their intuition. And which is always something I respected. It was altogether unique. I trusted their, I had very strong points of view on a lot of things and trusted their points of view on a lot of things. Generally, um, I deferred because I, I liked what they were doing and we got all the sounds, you know? And then if that wasn't enough, yeah, I had an appointment with Manuel Cuevas and I show up, I, he's like on the edge of town, this little house, you know, he's a little sign out front. And these things are kind of famed in country music, but also in rock and roll. Uh, Elvis wore one, Johnny Cash wore one, Grant Parson um, kind of put it on the hipster map with his pot leaves and drug paraphernalia. Uh, it's like embroidered, right? So it's like a suit that's custom tailored and embroidered. Chris Isaac wore them. Mike Mills, the bass player at REM, is probably where I first saw them and came to learn about them. It's this piece of Nashville history, really. This Ukrainian immigrant whose name is impossible for me to remember or pronounce, but he, you know, everyone called him Nudie Cohen, right? So the Nudie suit is Nudie Cohen's creation, but really it's Manuel Cuevas's creation. And Manuel is this Mexican immigrant. This is great, right? This is America, right? This Mexican tailor and this Ukrainian businessman come together and create this phenomenon country music like Porter Wagner, John Wayne, Johnny Cash, everybody wore a nudie suit. Post Malone wore one to the Grammys the last two, three years, right? So they're still semi-current, you know? Uh, Jenny Lewis uh, wore one. So this guy is just late 80s and he's 89 and he's just a piece of work. When I saw him, it was a Saturday, and on Friday night, he gets together with friends and drinks tequila. So all there's these tequila bottles all over the, the studio where he does fittings. And he, he's, man, he tell, tell me what you want. You know, he tries to get me to explain it. I, I, I don't really know. I just knew what colors I wanted and these ideas. I wanted stars, you know. I like I wanted stars. I wanted, like, rhinestones that sparkled, like, you know, constellations. I wanted vines growing up, like this idea of growth. Uh, and flowers, just a little bit of flower blooming. And that's all I told him. Uh, what kind of material, you know? And then, and then I started asking him questions because I, I mean, this guy's, this guy's met everybody. He talks about meeting Ronald Reagan, you know, you name it. So I come back a few months later to pick it up uh, and spent the afternoon with Manuel and my buddy Ty. And we actually kind of interviewed Manuel for a while. And in the middle of our conversation, country music hall of famer, Bill Anderson walks in and we're kind of like, oh, you know, everyone's a little startled because we're shooting something and Bill's right there. And he's getting his new suit for his induction later in December. You know, this guy's got like 20, you know, top 100 country hits and he just walks in. So it's a magical place. He's a magical dude. But I couldn't quite figure out. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a fashion guy. I couldn't quite figure out really when I was asking the real hard questions, like, why did you, why was this part of it important? And I decided that I wasn't going to let myself wear the suit in public until I was truly fully sober. Breaking down just came like a wave. We were driving down to uh, South Carolina to visit our in-laws, my wife and our kids in the back on Interstate 95, just this like road warrior of a trip everyone's going 85 miles an hour 90 miles an hour it's a like white knuckle trip and uh at the same time i i, I just got this I, I sang it into my phone um going down to carolina gonna try and settle down 
Driving south to Carolina I'm gonna try to settle down Put away these daily bandits Put away the ways I found Traced the Mississippi halfway Took a left there in the hills The highway turns to rubble And the rebel turns to bells And they say everything is better in between Where you're going, where you are and where you've been But the cracks are finally showing And it's too late to turn around I'm a hundred miles away didn't mean to, but it does end up to kind of embrace this story song that Nashville does so well, you know, with a clear beginning, middle, and end. The last bit is, um, there's a crossing in the distance and I can see the flashing lights. I can almost smell your perfume on a warm September night. So there, there's this setup where he's driving and you can tell he's reconciling the choices he's made and the places he's gone as he's going through the Appalachian Mountains and on his way to the Carolinas. But then you get to this last verse, the breakdown, you know, all the music goes away except the acoustic and, you know, the flashing lights, is it a railroad crossing? Are there police up ahead? I don't know. And he puts his pedals to the floorboard, throws his chances to the wind, throws his arms up into heaven. Third mention of heaven on this record, by the way, which is really interesting, I guess. It really drives home the point that I was seeking salvation. Throw my arms up into heaven and to hell with where I've been. So like, again, like there's so much of this record that's about me saying to myself, you got some work to do and now's the time to do it. There's a crossing in the distance and I can see the flashing lights. I can almost smell your perfume on the warm September night. Put my pedal to the floorboard, throw my chances to the wind. Arms up into heaven To hell with where I've been And they say everything's better in between Where you're going Where you are and where you've been But the cracks are finally showing And it's too late to turn around Well I'm a hundred miles I'm a hundred miles away I'm a hundred miles away And I think when I committed to that kind of lyric, it was a commitment to doing it because you can't, you can't say I'm going to do something and sing about it and not do it. My brother-in-law's mother passed away in the condo collapse in Florida last summer. You can't predict that kind of passing, right? And um, the day we got home from the funeral, which of course was a few months later because they had to find her. The day we came up from the funeral in Miami, everyone was out of the house and I was just strumming. Just a G chord. I mean, it's just a G chord with a slightly different pattern than normal. And it, it has a little bit of resignation to it. Like it, to me, it's like a song you play at the end of the day. It's got this looseness, this resignation. And it's just as much for my brother Pete 
and his mom, as it is for all of us, as it is for myself, like at the, at the end of this part of my career, at this beginning of something new, like, hey, you can wreck your brain and make yourself crazy um, trying to pretend, parentheses, that you know how it's gonna end up, but it might not end up that way in the end, right? Like, and um, if you let it, this is what I find with writing songs, if you let it, if you truly turn off your editor in your head that says, oh, that's stupid, <laughs> which I don't know about you, I think a lot of us have that editor that's constantly berating our bad ideas when like you got to let the ideas out. And the best part about songwriting is if you're really present, they just, they take care of themselves, right? And so this song, I think, was telling me what I needed to know, you know, that whatever this punctuation mark is, semicolon, comma, period, whatever, that it is as it is, as it should be, just as, you know, the end of Rosie's life is not how any of us would have guessed or wished, but it is what it is, you know? And it just reminded me to be radically present as much as I can. And you can't be radically present if you got eight beers in you, right? And so when I went down to Muscle Shoals with it, a couple weeks later, I told the guys the story and the vibe was already in the, in the iPhone recording. But Will, the music director, said to the guys like, I'm feeling straight up Otis on this one, what do you think? swamper like muscle shoals like southern vibe which to me has this like sunset like warm like that Miami thing it's just like resigned and relaxed it's like okay with what it is and it's the only song on the record that has no overdubs that is as we recorded it in muscle shoals no solos no shakers no tambourines no backing vocals that's that is pure Muscle Shoals. I started writing a memoir. I'm like 50,000 words into it at this point last summer. You know, when you write a memoir, you're, you're going through all of it, you know? What's interesting is I don't remember everything. And so when that line came to me, I thought, well, that's not true. You can't, you can't say that. But it is true insofar as what I've discovered through the work which is really to like plumb the depths and not just the like, how does my brain remember something? 
or what are the stories I tell myself, but what does my body remember? Why is my body uncomfortable when I'm on a dark street and I pass a dude who's taller than me, right? Oh, is that, is my body remembering being unsafe when I was 17 and I got assaulted in a parking lot of a Wawa, right? Like the body remembers. Like we were, there's a part of me that remembers at a profound level. And there's a part of all of us that remembers in a really profound way. And I think that's what I was trying to make sense of with I Remember Everything. You know, there's also a, like a reconciliation and a resignation of like, I don't regret what I did or what happened or what happened to me. And I won't forget it because it makes me who I am. Scribble on the sky, constellations overhead. Everybody dies, we're just counting down the days. Don't regret you, stealing something away from me. I won't forget you, I remember everything. kitchen for a lot of years and there was a piece of graffiti right outside of our apartment on the sidewalk it's like a great place for graffiti because you see it right in a way that's different and it said uh being impatient won't get you the secret song it was tagged rio 75 and rio 75 had tagged a few other sidewalks with phrases but this one i just i just love that I, I puzzled over it for years and i carried it in my notebooks for years i have a photograph of it you know and I always wanted to turn it into something. I spent a lot of time upstairs on that third floor of my office alone over the last year or two, you know, and looking out the window at the telephone lines out over the city towards the skyline here. And um, the lyric, uh, tear the curtains down, throw the windows wide. Tear the curtains down, throw the windows wide. Sink into the weight of your deepest grace and your darkest night. Can you feel the sound? Can you see the light from your hideaway, from your quiet place, from your secret life? This idea of like, you know, I just saw this like theatrical, like, you gotta open everything up. You got to like pull the windows up and like scream at the top of your lungs. Like it just had this energy of like, I got to say something here. I got it. And, and to me, it was like, as I wrote it and as I kind of puzzled, puzzled through it, which is how kind of the process, like I write it, I record it. And as I'm mixing it, I'm like, what is that about? You know, um, and you refine all the lyrics here and there to kind of make sense of it. And I guess what I came to is this, um, real, you know, this Fred Rogersism. He says, what's mentionable is manageable. And when we can talk about hard things, you know, we create space to move through those hard things. 
with each other for ourselves. When we do it for ourselves, we make it possible for others, you know? And I just thought, I have to cultivate patience. I have to trust the universe, you know, that the road to heaven is paved with a song. I gotta just take the road at whatever pace it unfolds. And that the lesson is, I gotta talk about this shit. I gotta, that's my job, that's what I do. I didn't know that was the work. I thought I was doing the work for me, but through this podcast, I work on friends and neighbors and talking to people like Sarah McBride or Michael Tyler or my friend, Kathy Kim, or my friend, Ron Lieber, talking about hard things. These conversations led to this epiphany of like, oh, all I have to do is something that I already like to do. And I think I'm pretty good at, which is creating a space between two human beings to have a hard conversation about painful things so that it's less painful. That's the secret, maybe. 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 It's one of them anyway. You're right. <laughs> Titling a record is, uh, it's a different kind of exercise because it's got a permanence to it and it's a characterization of the whole body of work. And it's the first thing to create an impression around the whole work. So, you know, you puzzle on it. And um, one of the things that was pervasive throughout the nine songs is stars living in new york city you got like two stars a night <laughs> it was like you got you know like venus and the north star because they were bright and everything else was gone now that i live somewhere where there are trees and birds and you can hear the breeze now that i'm closer to that sense of nature you see what you feel what you were missing and i spent a lot of time um, my back patio, sitting down, looking up at the stars. You know, it's in the song, Wherever You Go. Um, the lyric goes, you wake up from a long dream in a backyard full of stars, you know? There's stars all over the record. The Nashville skyline's darker when all the stars have gone to sleep, right? There's stars everywhere. And like, we need stars. We need distant points of light. I needed distant points of light. You know, constellations are collections of shapes that become stories. And those are stories we tell to help us understand ourselves. They're uh, navigation that sailors use to get home. I calculate I've moved 20 times in 50 years. I don't know, it seems like a lot to me. <laughs> uh, and I never, I, never, I never had my own home. When I was a kid, we moved a lot. When I was in New York, we rented, you'd move all the time. And this is this, we own this home. This is our little patch of grass. This is our little corner of the sky. And um, the constellations helped me find my way home. Uh, it's, it's actually from a lyric in uh, I Remember Everything in the, in the refrain. Um, it's, scribbled, it's scribbled on the sky in constellations overhead. Everybody dies. We're just counting down the days. I don't mean that dark, <laughs> it sounds dark, but I'm aware of that. I've always been aware of that. And maybe that's part of the suffering. Maybe that's part of what we gotta reconcile. But I also wanted to be sure I was using those stars to navigate properly and to find my way home. And I think it did. Tear the curtains down, throw the windows wide. Sink into the weight of your deepest grace and your darkest night. Can you 
feel the sound Can you see the light From your hideaway From your quiet place From your secret life It's getting is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Please help us bring Friends and Neighbors the documentary to the big screen by visiting fnndoc.com. Without your support, we simply can't finish the film or carry on this deep and simple podcast. So thank you. It's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. <laughs>